We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. All right. Today I am joined by Dr. Michael Turner. Uh, Dr. Turner has uh, an incredible story. I actually uh, came across his story when someone forwarded a Substack that he wrote about his personal journey in terms of being a, a medical doctor and his training and uh, what happened during COVID as it relates to his patients and his personal uh, experience as well as the vaccines. Um, so, Dr. Turner, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I understand you are a Harvard trained, uh, also a Mayo Clinic trained doctor, correct? Medical doctor. Yes, yes. Thankfully, I had a great opportunity to go to those eminent institutions and had a fantastic experience. Learned a lot. Very grateful to both of them. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, Northern California, and I had an interest in health and wellness that was longstanding uh, just from you know my background. And actually, I was very influenced by health class that I took in high school. So it was just your regular 10th grade health class, but I remember being very affected by it. Uh, and I started basically running, you know, lifting weights, not eating so many candy bars and not drinking so much chocolate milk at recess, basically, mm -hmm. and trying to eat clean, although we didn't use that word back then. This would be like late 80s, early 90s. We didn't have right. that word. But anyway, that's kind of what it was. Um, and so I had that interest in health and wellness. And then also I worked as a school teacher before going to medical school. So I was a full-time classroom teacher. Yeah, in mm -hmm. California. I took some time off between undergrad, which was at Stanford and, mm -hmm. and med school at Harvard. And I actually ended up taking three years off. So I worked as a full-time classroom teacher of fifth grade mm -hmm. and then seventh and eighth grade science, public school the first year and then private school the second year. And that was really formative for me as well because uh, it, taught me how to explain concepts and also emphasize the importance of that. So when I'm in interacting with patients, right, uh, part of the hat, one of the hats that I wear is as an educator. And I'm thinking if I could help them understand their problem in the same way that I understand their problem, they'd be as motivated and as capable of taking care of themselves. And that's the ultimate goal. In fact, sure. the word uh, doctor comes from a word that means teacher. You know, if you look back oh, at the etymology, of it, it's pretty interesting. So I had my teacher emphasis and I had my natural sort of health and wellness uh, personal emphasis. And then I combine that with my medical training and have come out to create now what I would call an integrated medicine practice. It's a telemedicine practice mm -hmm. that's uh, nationwide and even worldwide. I've had some consults as regards COVID wow. and vaccines and things like that from actually all over the world. Some Americans mm -hmm. living on military bases abroad, uh, okay. for example. Um, and then lastly, I would just say that I initially worked for a hospital in my town. I'm in Washington mm -hmm. state. So I worked okay. for a hospital for the first 12 years of my practice, went independent just prior to COVID. And I'm so thankful that I did. It was uh, a blessing uh, at, in, in retrospect in its timing, mm -hmm. because that allowed me some of the freedom of thought and flexibility to really explore concepts like early treatment or vaccines, you know, mm -hmm. what's really going on and essentially having the 
freedom to follow my conscience and bring the best patient care scenarios to life instead of just sort of cookie cutter box corporate medicine. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to Dr. Pierre Corey, um, who I, I know you've um, said that you, you follow some of the work that the FLCCC is doing. And, yes. um, you know, I've, I've had these conversations with, with um, Dr. Pierre Corey about that. There's this weird um, kind of uh, divergence of uh, in the medical system, I think that's happening where you've got the big box kind of, like you said, cookie cutter, um, Kaiser Permanente, Cigna's of the world. And then you've got more integrative medicine, which is what the approach that you're taking. Uh, so let's talk about when COVID hit as a medical practitioner, you find yourself with this new practice. Um, how were you sifting through the information that was getting presented to the medical community about how to treat patients? Great question. Well, there wasn't much through official channels, right? There wasn't much. There was this initial concept of kind of just keeping people at home, you know, symptomatic care, wear an O2 monitor, you know, take some Tylenol. And then if you get really bad, you go into the ER. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're, if you're really bad off, you're admitted and ventilated. And maybe you get remdesivir, but at that point, your odds aren't looking good anyway. So there was this vacuum, this obvious vacuum in terms of how do we actually help these people in their homes? Right. You know, how do we help them short of them landing in the ER? And one of the poignant personal stories that I have that I mentioned in the article is a good friend of mine named Bruce. And I had spent Thanksgiving with Bruce. This would, this would have been a winter of 2020. Right. And I was on vacation then, you know, mm -hmm. kind of busy, caught up with uh, other concerns, but I ended up getting some text messages from his wife. She's like, oh, Bruce isn't doing too well. I had to take him to the ER. And then all of a sudden she texts me again. Oh, they sent him back home. They said he was sat decently. He's got a cough, but you know, he just hold on, sit tight. And long story short, he bounced to the ER two or three times, sent back home each time until he finally got so bad, he got admitted and then promptly died like three or four days later oh, in the hospital. And, I'm so sorry. Um, and this was, uh, yeah, it, it was tragic. So seeing the, the vacuum of kind of official information coming down and then seeing the mm -hmm. personal fallout of that, it was right. striking, it was concerning. So it, my basic love of my patients and desire to be an excellent clinician kind of had me embark on a, on a self quest, essentially to figure out how do you treat at home? And what's interesting in the Substack article I wrote, I, I included a screenshot, right? It's a, literally a Google search screenshot that says, how do I treat COVID at home? And the first thing that comes up on Google was get vaccinated. And mm -hmm. I, I had to just sort of raise an eyebrow at the same time as chuckle, at the same time as be very concerned, because first of all, getting a vaccine is not a treatment for an active COVID infection, right? I mean, even if I were pro-vaccine, once you're sick, you're sick. Vaccine is a preventative measure. It's not a treatment measure. Not to mention, there's an obvious medical contraindication is the word that we would use, but there's a conflict. If you're actively sick with COVID, you should not get the vaccine. Even if the vaccine were great, again, even CDC mm -hmm. guidelines, it's medically contraindicated. You don't give anyone the vaccine who's actively sick with COVID. So it was ridiculous that the first query on Google of how do I treat COVID at home is a big long diatribe from the CDC that's very sanctimonious that says you need to get vaccinated. Uh, so that was concerning. Uh, and sure. we could talk more about it, but thankfully I ended up learning about the FLCCC not too long after that and got, got some credible information to give to my patients. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be my next question for you is, um, yeah. in, you know, you find yourself, you know, navigating your way through somewhat blindly as most of the medical community was doing. 
you have a, a close personal friend pass away. Um, at this time, were you aware of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, some of the, the, the early treatments that were being suppressed? Were you even aware of that? I wasn't. I was not. I did not. Be, otherwise, I would have offered it to my friend at that time. Right, yeah, right. good point. So I didn't really become aware of that till about spring of 2021. So right after the vaccine had come out, actually, a patient asked me, what do you think about ivermectin? And I said, well, I learned about that in medical school. It's an anti-parasite med. We use it in travel medicine mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, are you saying it's relevant for COVID? They're like, well, I was reading some stuff. I heard about it. Uh, have you heard of Dr. Corey? He gave this testimony to the Senate. It's on YouTube. I'm like, no. Uh, okay. You got my interest. So uh, that was exactly how it started. And I think slightly after that point, Dr. Corey's video was taken down, unfortunately, but I was able right. to make my way toward FLCCC and then start looking at all their evidence for ivermectin. So that was probably spring of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and to my own dismay, that knowledge had been out already for about a year, right? right. So the, the knowledge about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, that was out in 2020. It should have been more widespread uh, obviously, and adopted. There are reasons why it wasn't when we can talk about that, but that's a shame. So I feel a bit castigated myself, even as a medical professional, it wasn't solely to a year later that I really got on board with that. Well, and it sounds like the, you know, um, the campaign to suppress that information and keep it not only from, from the general populace, but keep it from the medical community is it was very, very effective. Um, so, so then you, of course, Fast forward, all of a sudden we start seeing these vaccines being deployed into the human population under an emergency use authorization, which to yeah. this day, they're still technically under an emergency use authorization. Tell me what your mm -hmm. thoughts were. Obviously, you're, you know, you're, you're someone who is, you, you mentioned that you have a background um, as an educator. So you clearly are interested in the critical thinking process, not only the critical thinking as an educator, but, but also as a medical professional, you're Harvard trained um, doctor, and they start talking about vaccines. Tell me what, what your perception of this was early on. Yeah, good point. Well, I believe in giving people the benefit of the doubt and mm -hmm. institutions, the benefit of the doubt as well. So in that case, that ended up leading me astray, let's say in hindsight, as we discovered, right. But off, off the top of my head, I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll give this the benefit of the doubt. I mean, we're, you know, uh, President Trump has been working hard doing this Operation Warp Speed, trying to mobilize all these researches, resources, trying to fast track this. I'm sure there's armies of PhDs all over the globe working on this vaccine, you know, day and night and trying to save the globe from this catastrophe. And I'm sure they have good intentions. And let's see what product they can come out with. And let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's give it a chance to work, you know, and it's, I don't expect it to be the end all be all. People still need good early treatment, as I said. But when the vaccine first came out, I was pro ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and pro vaccine. There was no distinction in my mind because again, they operate in different realms. This was early treatment and this is supposedly hopefully prevention, right? right. So there, there was no distinction um, at, at first. So I actually got my vaccine, of course. Um, I was encouraged to as a medical professional, but I didn't see a strong reason not to either initially, right. knowing there was some risk. Granted, Pfizer had only six months of data, et cetera, right? But um, on, on, the, on the idea that I don't want to catch COVID, I don't want to lose time off of work running my own mm -hmm. practice with COVID. I don't want to develop long COVID, right? right. Uh, I probably need to go get this vaccine and just keep myself safe. I'll probably do fine. So I went in, got my Pfizer, got my second Pfizer about six weeks later. Thankfully, didn't have any 
untoward effects, a sore muscle in my shoulder and felt like I probably shouldn't work out for a few days. But that was sort of my initial approach. And some patients would come with specific concerns about the vaccine. They'd say, well, I don't know, Dr. Turner. Um, I was reading some things on the internet. It got pulled down, but you know, have you seen this video or have you considered that? And at first it kind of came sounding very fringe. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it sounded very far out and very friendly. Yeah. Some of the things they were saying against the vaccine. But again, I'm an open minded person and I always believe in, you know, giving my patient the benefit of the doubt with where they're coming from. So I'm like, well, you know, tell me more. And so I kept hearing these names pop up. Dr. Malone was a big one. Kept popping mm -hmm. up. Well, this guy, Dr. Malone, have you heard of him? No, nah, I haven't heard of this guy. Well, he actually invented mRNA technology. Oh, interesting. All right. He's got to know a thing or two. You know, he's right. done sound like a complete whack, you know, so. Right. <laughs> what's the story here? So it was a little, actually, again, trickled out from patients that I started to embark on that path. Right. And it sounds like as a medical professional, unfortunately, you were basically beholden to whatever the CDC and the NIH were, were sending to you guys. Correct. I mean, there's, there's really no yeah. uh, pathway for you to say, all right, well, I'm going to do my own research. I suppose you could, but that would just take such an exorbitant amount of time. Um, and, and, but sure. I guess why, why would you, right? Because up to this point, um, I guess a better, a better way to frame this question is, um, the guidance put set forth by the CDC, is that the guidance that, that you essentially are beholden to, um, when it comes to these types of scenarios? Yes. It's strongly taken into consideration, right? You have your own individual uh, freedom of, of conscience to act in good conscience yeah. towards your patients, right? But what the CDC is saying is going to carry a lot of weight. Uh, what your medical professional societies are saying will carry a lot of weight as well. And then if you're within a hospital system, they're going to have probably consensus statements, you know, about yeah. we're in support of this or that treatment, right. and you'll have reasons why. So modern medicine tends to be pretty conformist. It tends to be mm -hmm. pretty conservative. Now that can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's it's a it's a good thing in the sense of modern medicine isn't going to easily jump on every bandwagon that comes out, right? So if you say, oh, I've got this cure for cancer, people are going to be skeptical. It's going to take a long time for all the medical societies to turn and say, yeah, this actually helps cancer, right? And sometimes uh, they're going to be vociferously opposed before they grudgingly accept and then ultimately adopt whatever it is proposed right. to be, right? So whatever it is that's new is always sort of fighting an uphill battle within the culture of medicine. That's good and bad. Um, right. So, although it seems yeah, like in this know, case, the, yeah, yeah, it seems like in this case, though, the medical it, that, that it was the inverse of that, right? Like we'd only had data for six months, and all of a sudden, the medical community was like really lock, stock, and barrel buying into this. It was almost a good, like good a, mon point. a mantra. <laughs> a good right? point. A, a nice observation there. Yeah, there was sort of a, there's a bit of hypocrisy there and inconsistency. Yeah, yeah. and I think. I think that was driven by the, the politics of it, right? Because we have the right. biggest public health crisis, arguably since AIDS, and mm -hmm. has grown to be even bigger than that, I would say. And so it had political overtones, It's it, and it had urgency to it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got the CDC saying, this is a pandemic, we've got to do something, you have talking heads on CNN saying, we've got to do something, and the thing that has to be done is this vaccine, there's uh, a whole lot of fire that's lit, let's say, under your backside to want to get on board and make the right decision, right, sure. uh, quickly and start telling your patients in a credible way what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the whole thing was rushed, even from the medical consensus viewpoint. But then once it turned, it became very much sort of like get on the train, 
You know, yeah. we got to stay on point. We have to have one consistent talking point. We can't have every right. doctor, you know, with a plethora of different opinions about this vaccine. Right. We got to get this thing out to the world. Yeah. Right. And that that's a really important point because I remember, you know, going, I actually went to go get a mammogram and I remember walking into the office and there was, the woman said to me, are you vaccinated? And I started to, of course, go through all the the data. And I, I probably sounded like uh, an extension of FLCCC, certainly uh, representing the Unity Project. And, you know, the woman nice. just kind of puts her hands up and she's like, stop, like uh, as if as if to say, like, she's exhausted by my, um, you know, the spewing of scientific in- information that I am now aware of. And she points right. to this sign and I read the sign and it basically said that if I had been vaccinated in the prior, I think it was two weeks that I was not able to get a mammogram because the skewed results that they were seeing. And I remember looking at this woman saying, are you kidding me? You guys literally have a sign in your office that's saying that if I've been vaccinated, it can skew the results of my mammogram. How in the world are you promoting, continuing to promote and push this vaccine. Of course, you know, she, she was a nurse in the front office. So, you know, as she has said, and this is kind of the common answer that I get just doing my job, you know, look, this is, these are the guidelines. We're just following the guidelines. And I guess I would love to hear, um, because you are someone who is very unique in the medical community, much like the team of doctors, um, that are working with the FLCCC, you guys are totally unique because you are critically thinking you're acting in accordance with the Hippocratic oath. And, um, yes. so, so I, I just, I always like to ask these questions when we, when we get the, the opportunity to interview doctors, um, what is it, what responsibility does the medical community have, um, to, to ask those questions, right. To, you know, I, um, I went and I saw a doctor and I said, tell me what your thoughts are on the vaccine. And this was, this was like deep into, this was probably two months ago. Right. So, so we're, mm-hmm. we've got enough data at this point. And his answer to me were, oh, I think vaccines are great. I love it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the vaccine. And I said, well, can you tell me what, what tools you use to understand whether or not this vaccine is safe? And he just said, well, you know, the vaccine's safe. I mean, it's just, it's safe, right? Like it's, you know, I'm pro-vaccine. Um, so it didn't seem like there was any critical thinking. So I guess, t- tell me what, what your thoughts are on the responsibilities that, that the medical community has. Great point, Laura, great point. Um, At its root, I would say the responsibility of the medical community is to be the guardian Mm. of public trust Mm. regarding healthcare. right? That's really at the core. The the deepest word and concept I would use is trust. We have to curate Mm -hmm. and guard and steward and protect and earn every day newly the the public's trust. And to do that requires critical thinking. It requires free sharing of information. It requires scientific inquiry. It requires vigorous debate. It requires transparency, right? Uh, it requires, you know, communication being, uh, you know, clear and on message and on point and speaking in ways that patients can understand and convincing them that we have their best interests in mind, right? We're asking patients literally to submit to going under anesthesia and getting surgeries or getting procedures done to their heart or their brain or their spinal cord or taking drugs that can kill the cancer or kill the patient if the drug is misdosed, right? So Mm -hmm. we have to earn the public's trust and keep it there. And that is the foremost responsibility. That's why Hippocratic oaths, other oaths along the way have always been there. Um, And there are historical lessons learned where if medicine strays from that, first do no harm. And with a primary emphasis to care about the patient, 
and ends up elevating other interests, it's in danger of losing its soul, essentially. Mm. Uh, and I would say we're in grave danger right now in the US in that sense. Uh, it's in mm. danger of losing its soul because we have a crisis of trust. We have a crisis of confidence. I can't tell you how many patients come to me and they say something like, I had my doctor, my PCP, I work with him for years, but now every time I go in, he just berates me about getting this vaccine. He won't yeah. listen to anything I'm saying. I don't know if I can trust him anymore. Can you mm -hmm. be my PCP? Something mm -hmm. like that. I right. hear that probably 10 times a week. You yeah. Know? And, you know, so, I'm, I'm glad you said that mm -hmm. because I talk about that all the time. I do think that one of the biggest problems right now is that we have absolutely broken the trust in the, of, of between the, you know, the doctor patient relationship right now. Yes. Yeah. It needs to be Absolutely. restored. It needs healing. Yes. Supremely. And this goes beyond just the question mm -hmm. of vaccine, right? It goes beyond even a question of COVID. It gets kind of into the philosophical realm of mm -hmm. just yeah. doctor patient relationship. We need to make sure that we're there, that we have a, right. each other's best interests in mind, that it's an open dialogue. It's a free dialogue and that we're working in the best interest of the patient. You know, I, I loved my training at the Mayo Clinic and I benefited from it greatly. And one of the core sayings that they inculcated in us is the needs of the patient come first. Okay. The needs of the patient come first. That was one of the Mayo brothers who said that. And it's actually written in a book. When you begin your training there, there's a whole little pocket handout that they give you. It's got their mission statement, core values, all of that. It's really, really well done. They're outstanding with their corporate culture. In any sense, the needs of the patient come first. Anyone who's trained in Mayo will know that phrase. It's kind of just reverberating in your subconscious. Yeah. And that's what made Mayo Clinic great. Initially, they were the first group practice. They were the first multi-specialty practice. Mm -hmm. So they said, hey, we're going to pull surgeons, internal medicine, you know, whatever. We're all going to come together and the needs of the patient come first. And patients recognize that and that built their reputation to this day. And that's exactly what we're talking about. And right now, it's that's not always clear, right? It's the needs of the healthcare institution or it's the needs of the insurance company or yep. it's the needs of the federal or state government. It's the needs of the CDC, like who knows what, but there's a whole lot of things interposed right now between the doctor and the patient. And that is just tearing down the soul of medicine right now. Well, sure. I mean, we've just, we have just come off of the heels of two years of watching video after video of people saying goodbye to their loved ones through a window or over an iPad. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the human cruelty that was um, displayed over the last two years is shocking to me. And, and um, sadly, the, the suffering and the human cruelty has been at the hands of, in some cases, the medical community, not all, because I do think, you know, I, I firmly believe it's doctors like you and doctors like, you know, the doctors that are representing FLCCC, the doctors that are on our board, you guys are literally saving, um, healthcare and really this society, um, by doing what you're doing. Uh, but I, but unfortunately I feel like you guys are, you guys are rare. So, so tell me, um, when did you start to feel like, Hey, I should start questioning these vaccines a little deeper. Something, something doesn't seem, um, right. Like I'm starting to get some, some red flags. Indeed. The first open door for that for me was understanding the spike protein. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of it. So understanding first, as far as treating COVID, my concern was how do I provide excellent early treatment for COVID or how do I treat long COVID, for example. And to do that, you have to understand what we would call the pathophysiology of the spike protein, AKA what that thing does in the body, how it interacts and why it's negative. 
So as I was understanding all of the negative implications of the spike protein from a COVID infection viewpoint and what that can do to patients and how we need to counteract that, when I learned that the vaccines also release spike protein, and in fact, the spike protein that they create is arguably worse than the natural COVID spike protein for reasons that we can elaborate on later. Yeah. Dr. Malone's published a substack on that that was outstanding. Right. When I realized that, that was the beginning of the dam breaking, saying, oh my word, why would we right. allow a vaccine to continue now that we know the spike protein is this pathogenic? Like maybe we didn't know, maybe the vaccine makers didn't know. I'll grant them a free pass on that. I'm not going to jump to conclusions and saying they're sure. trying to depopulate the earth and it's a mass genocide. <laughs> like right, I, I won't right, go right. there, you know, yeah. presumptuously. Yeah. But let's just say once we knew that the spike protein was a problem beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt, that should have been the moment these vaccines were stopped and recalled. Absolutely. They should have said we got to come up with another target, right, to stimulate these people's immune systems against COVID. And the fact that that was not being addressed at all and that there were, frankly, completely false statements out there like the spike protein is a harmless protein. As I quoted in my Substack article right off the CDC, I go, wait a second. That's... (laughs) wrong it's disingenuous i can't believe this you know and there's all these you know things on the internet saying it's not a problem that was really the beginning did that make you um that had to make you i guess have a moment of pause and and look at and evaluate uh how you viewed the cdc i would imagine yes hugely and at the same time i was having a moment of pause of how i would view the fda Mm -hmm. right because I would see that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were helpful, but then you had the FDA actively persecuting them, maligning them, restricting Mm -hmm. access, sending out threatening letters to doctors and pharmacists, as you know about all this. Mm -hmm. So it's like, wait a second, what's what's the FDA's? Who are they working for? (laughs) You know, where are they coming from here? Um, And then at the same time to see the CDC's total dishonesty about the vaccine side effects and the role of the spike protein, it was disturbing, mm-hmm. quite disturbing. Uh, and then, you know, as Robert Kennedy pointed out so well in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, mm-hmm. that started to tie together then the behind the scenes political ties yeah. and conflicts of interest, the money that was flowing back and forth, the fact that the, where the FDA comes from, their budget is mainly funded from pharmaceutical industries. And, you know, the Pfizer will go ahead and put out their candidate to head the FDA when any new political administration comes in and he's just a puppet essentially to make sure their interests are taken care of, things like that. When the FDA started coming out against NAC and acetylcysteine, as you may know, very helpful mm-hmm. nutraceutical against COVID, they, they wrote right. some letters. And acetylcysteine got pulled from Amazon. You know, I had sick patients with lung problems asking me, how can I get N-acetylcysteine? Just disappear from Amazon. I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was crazy. I, I, and and I, we've talked about this kind of ad nauseum on this podcast, but crazy things like shutting down beaches and parks. And I mean, the list goes mm-hmm. on, right? The the response yeah. was so, um, for lack of a better term, not to be cliche, because it's become a cliche term, but it was mm-hmm. so Orwellian, right? Um, so you mm-hmm. see, you know, it, it, here in the United States, we see all these, these acts that are being taken to suppress information and to keep people locked down. And you look, you know, we're turning on our TV and it's just a constant barrage of images of fear and, and death. Yeah. And I mean, people in China being sprayed down with some type of chemical to sterilize things. And, um, right. so, so at what point did you start to see, or have you seen, uh, patients 
that are in, having issues as a result of the the vaccine? Issues as a result of the vaccine? Yes, I've seen yeah. a number of them at this point. Um, it obviously wasn't initially, right? So the vaccine rolled out essentially spring of 21, um, yeah. maybe that fall, so maybe about a year ago, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, is when I started to see some vaccine injury, vaccine complications. Yeah. You know, of different sorts, and a lot of it neurological. So, mm -hmm. you know, your Bell's palsy or just even terrible ongoing brain fog, let's say, or tinnitus, um, mm -hmm. you know, definitely blood clotting uh, sequela of different kinds. So yeah. about a year ago, I would say I really started to see that. And this is, you know, an, an unfortunate truth, though, that the number of vaccine side effects is astronomically higher than anywhere you're going to see those uh, official numbers because they don't get identified and tracked and recorded appropriately, right? Like mm -hmm. half of these patients were like, I don't know, I think it's a vaccine side effect. I think I'm feeling crummier after the vaccine. I'm not sure. I went to my regular doctor. He said, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with the vaccine. You know, what do you think, Dr. Turner? And so we're trying to put the pieces together. But at a certain point, I'm like, oh, this is clearly you know, this is clearly right. the vaccine, you know, everything right. about this is quacking like a duck. It's the duck. <laughs> and yet that number never got recorded anywhere, right? That went, course, that yeah. disappeared into thin air. That yeah. that never got chalked up. So. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So, of course, everyone I think now knows, or it's certainly people that would be listening to this podcast. I hope there are people that listen to this that, that um, are questioning, but you know, the, the bears data that is actually being recorded is a fraction of what is actually happening because it's so complex yes. to, first of all, it's complex to, to even find a doctor that would be willing to engage in the conversation that you're having with your patients, right? Like you heard, yes. like you said, you have patients that come to you and their prior doctor says, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's definitely not the vaccine, which is always fascinating to me because, um, I am not a medical professional, but the way I view medicine mm -hmm. is medicine is, is a science, right? Medicine, there, there is no yes. finite concrete, um, answer to every scenario, right? So you, every patient is yeah. unique and their symptoms are unique. And so, um, for a doctor to definitively say, oh, it's definitely not the vaccine that in and of itself as a patient that should give someone pause. Right. And, and question whether or not their doctor is even willing to engage in, in the true spirit and practice of medicine. Um, so, so do you continue to this day to see, um, uh, patients that are vaccine injured and are you seeing an uptick in patients? Yes. And yes. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. I see a number of them every week, mm -hmm. you know, concerning all the way down to young people. I mean, I had a pharmacist who contacted me and said, I had to get this shot. I didn't want to. And sure enough, I've had all these problems. And she went into all these problems that were very typical for, for vaccine complications. I felt terrible. Nursing students, you know, forced to get the vaccine. Now they're on, barely can work on disability, partly because of complications, side effects, you know, oh all gosh. the way to older people. You know, one, one very notable case comes to mind is a gentleman who owns a car dealership, very wealthy mm -hmm. guy, owns a series of Lexus dealerships. And his, basically his general manager contacted me and said, you got to see my boss. He's just not himself since he got the vaccine. His words were he's aged 10 years in the six months since he's got the vaccine. He goes, he's not himself at work. I, he just, he looks terrible. You got to help him out. So I got in touch with him. Uh, we tried to start helping him. But his case was particularly complicated because he had, being a man of status and wealth, he, had, he was tied in very extensively in the local network of uh, hospitalists. 
and, and the system there. So these doctors locally were saying, no, nah, it's definitely not the vaccine. You know, you don't need ivermectin, all this party line stuff. Meanwhile, I'm this maverick guy, you know, who's appearing on a Zoom call <laughs> trying to tell right. the truth about the vaccine, you know, right. and trying to say the fact that your, your GM is noting that you've aged 10 years and six months since you got the shot. Is that how you, you know? It's so, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm sure, I mean, look, it, it sounds to me like it's going to grow and uh, it's interesting because I was, again, I was talking to Dr. Corey about this, about how mm-hmm. there, there will be a need, I think, for doctors like you um, in the special, in, in, in the way that you're treating, right? You talk about the integrative medicine um, because it sounds to me like a lot of what we're seeing uh, as a result of these, these vaccine injuries is kind of a spectrum of uh, neurological or autoimmune type disorders. And uh, again, I'm not a medical doctor, but I know that, that when you're dealing with people that have some type of autoimmune disorder, it's, it's oftentimes very hard to identify and to develop the right, you know, medical intervention, um, for the, for that. And I, and I, it seems to me like we're seeing kind of an explosion of, um, those types of disorders after people are getting vaccinated. Indeed, it's a complicated question medically. It's a complicated picture to pull together. You're right, it affects mm-hmm. multiple organ systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to long COVID situation, right? Vaccine injury and long COVID are essentially the same disease as people from FLCCC have stated. That's not me coming up with that phrase. I mean, I've heard that right. in presentations and conferences. The protocols right. to treat them are very, very similar. Uh, and it's, it is, it's complicated. And not only do you have the traditional medical establishment that's really not as questioning as it should be of the vaccines, but you also have the traditional medical establishment being very siloed in terms of, oh, endocrinology, neurology, mm-hmm. uh, orthopedics, whatever. And COVID can cause brain fog, tingling in your legs, chest pains, and that hip arthritis problem that you thought was fine is now hurting. And now mm-hmm. you have a new thyroid problem, right? right. COVID can mm-hmm. cause that vaccine complications can cause all of that as well. So it's hitting multiple organ systems. So really an entire new medical field and specialty and paradigm needs to come into being. And I hope that FLCCC and other people more intelligent uh, and more politically connected and so forth than I am, that can begin to pull this all together and work collaboratively. But we need to define best practices around treating long COVID or vaccine injury and they need to be promulgated and made accessible and made affordable for people too. That's another thing that bothers me. There are some very helpful integrated treatments that are out there like hyperbaric oxygen, for example, or infrared sauna, but patients are being gouged in my mind uh, by some of these these places. And so it's it's a crying need. Right, and the unfortunate thing is that again, um, along with this kind of, uh, creation of, of the standard medical system and then the more integrative, um, care the, the, you know, the latter with the integrative care, a lot of times the insurance companies are not paying for this. And so it, Mm -hmm. you're, you really have to have a patient that um, has the financial ability to seek that type of medical treatment. And, um, Mm -hmm. and of course the, you know, of course the insurance companies aren't going to cover it because then they would have to acknowledge that there is something wrong with the vaccines. The minute that they acknowledge something's wrong with the vaccines, they get pulled off of the market, which, um, I mean, we could talk, that's a whole separate podcast. I mean, we could talk for hours about, in my opinion, about Mm -hmm. why these should be, they should never have been deployed into the human population and should be immediately pulled off of the market. Um, Mm -hmm. what do you, what do you see for the, for the future of 
the med the medical community around these vaccines? Do you think that at some point um, you're going to start to see a uh, acceptance um, and acknowledgement in the medical community uh, that maybe these vaccines aren't uh, shouldn't be so heavily pushed. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think that we're going to have the medical community as a whole come out and say, whoa, we made a mistake. We shouldn't push these. Let's pull them off the market. But my hope um, and my belief is that we're going to start to see some type of um, acknowledgement of, of the dangers of the vaccines in the medical community. I agree. I'm hopeful for that as well. I'm kind of cautiously optimistic, but yes, I think it'll move in that direction. The good, the good news is that the truth is on our side, number one, and also the flow of, of change of opinion is pretty one directional, right? Like nobody's going from being anti-vaccine to saying, wait, I, I re re disregard all of that. I've changed my mind completely. Now I'm totally going to open vaccine. There's basically no logic True, to get yeah. someone from that side to the other side, but the logic yeah. and the data and the ongoing observations that people make and basically time is on our side, information and public opinions flowing in one direction on the vaccine pretty clearly. Yeah, so that's, that's a, good point. a helpful concept. I think the first thing that needs to happen is politically though. So before doctors can change so easily or maybe even give a mea culpa and you know get a little more honest about the deal, the political cover has to be there, the climate has to be there. So the opposite of what's going on in California, for example, right? right. So the COVID misinformation, you know, law and prosecution, all that, that's essentially muzzled, silenced, censored, yeah. and wrapped up in a straitjacket, you know, the medical establishment from breaking out of that mold. So it has to kind right. of trickle down from the top in terms of politics, lawyers, mm -hmm. you know, boards, yeah. things like that. There has to be political cover to just say, hey, possible that we, these things aren't as great as we thought they were, possible that we were overly aggressive in rolling them out. Let's really be honest with the data. Let's reassess and reconfigure what, yeah. what's in the public's best interests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I am so grateful for your time today. I think your, your journey is certainly unique when it comes to the medical field to it's, it's been, it's pretty exciting for me, at least to talk to a doctor, um, that started this journey out by, um, believing in, in the vaccines and then, you know, kind of having this discovery process of the concerning nature of this particular vaccine. So, um, yes. it's been, it's been really fun talking to you. Uh, tell, tell us how people can follow the work that you're doing. Sure. Uh, so I have a Substack, and, uh, that's Michael Turner, MD. You should finally, uh, find me pretty easily there. Uh, I think the channel is called health and wellness with Dr. Turner or a wellness moment, I think. Okay. Um, beyond that, then there's my website. So michaelturnermd.com and that branches off into blogs and uh, different videos I've done, things like that. So okay. I'd be happy to get in touch with people. I have a passion to educate, as I mentioned. So I'd love to continue to pursue opportunities from just talking with one person at a time to talking to a thousand or 10,000 people at a time. You know, that's really my passion to help amplify the education and the empowerment of people all over the country on this issue. Well, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and um, I, I couldn't agree more. And we'll definitely uh, make sure that we amplify what you're doing because again, I think it's doctors like you that are actually going to restore trust in um, the doctor patient relationship in the medical environment. And I think 
you're going to change, change the narrative. So what we'll do is we'll link, um, your, your Substack and we'll link your, your website in this podcast so people can access it. And I encourage everyone to follow the work that Dr. Turner is doing. He's it's, it's phenomenal work. So thank you so much. It's been really fun chatting with you today. From all of us at the unity project. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.